Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly. And as always, during the show, we'll be joined by our former ITN journo turned pundit, Derek Dyson. And the Matildas Asian Cup campaign commences on Friday evening with plenty riding on the tournament for Tony Gustafsson's side ahead of next year's Home World Cup. Former Matilda and now 10 commentator Amy Chapman joins us to look at that tournament. Willem, after that, with a little bit more on the Matildas and plenty on the Socceroos, who've got a big date against Vietnam in Melbourne next Thursday evening. Now, the chaotic regime of Rafael Benitez at Everton. We'll talk to a man who spent time under him at Liverpool, one of Sky Sports' best pundits, Stephen Warnock. And, of course, we'll wrap it up with stoppage time with plenty of football to talk about. Michael, uh, well done in my absence. I did notice a noticeable lack of Liverpool content, apart from one um, smart aleck uh, story that uh, Derek managed to put in there. Uh, But um, you guys um, steered the ship nicely. Well, it's just good to get a hold of the editorial direction of the show and, you know, talk about other things other than Liverpool. But uh, no, I had a good time um, uh, sitting in for you for a couple of weeks. And uh, But but what a big fortnight ahead do, do, do Football Australia have. It's a massive fortnight for the Matildas who get their Asian Cup underway in Mumbai on Friday. But what about the Socceroos next week? I'll tell you what, that game against Vietnam is going to be ginormous. It's going to be a sellout. Amy Park will be rocking. And uh, there's no there's no other result acceptable for the Socceroos than a win uh, at Amy Park uh, in a couple of weeks' time. So Football Australia, they've got a big couple of weeks heading, uh, coming up. And uh, we're, we're expecting that both the men and women... Uh, the Socceroos and the Matildas are going to win. Let's hope so. The backs are to the wall for the Socceroos, Michael. We know that's when they uh, can do their best work. Let's start, though, with the Matildas news-wise. They are, of course, in Mumbai, ahead of the Asian Cup opener against Indonesia on Friday. Holly McNamara and Courtney Vine were the final two players confirmed in the 23-player squad, with Carly Roseback and, and Winona Heatley, the two to miss. Following the opening match, the Matildas play the Alan Stachich-led Philippines on Monday and then Thailand next Thursday. Rob, I'll throw to you first. Uh, We're going to speak to Amy Chapman shortly and she'll preview the tournament and our expectations for the Matildas. But from a media perspective, it's been interesting over the past week. I think over the past couple of months, uh, there's really been uh, not a peep about it. And perhaps that's been to do with the fact that usually these are World Cup qualifiers and uh, this tournament doesn't have that added layer for us because we're already there as the hosts. But in the past week, uh, people have seemed to realise that there's some silver on the line. The Matildas are hopefully a good crack at at winning it uh, and the coverage has, has gone bananas. Yeah, it really has. Um, one of my favourite articles in all of that was Don Bossi's uh, article, uh, the headline, Why Nothing But Silverware Will Do For The Matildas At The Asian Cup. So yeah, you're right that uh, um, this tournament seemed to fly under the radar a little, particularly off the back of uh, the friendlies and the Olympics. But with the, the the World Cup next year, you'd hope that um, some momentum will really start to build. Um, let, let's anticipate a positive result. Uh, we're sure Amy will be expecting that as well. Uh, the Matildas come through this tournament. They get some convincing results. Tony Gustafsson finally gets uh, the uh, the kind of momentum that he needs, and uh, and we can see the Matildas stay on the on the front pages. Because there's one uh, thing uh, for sure uh, uh, with Channel Ten. If if there's a, a real highlight in the ratings uh, since the television ratings since they've taken over 
over the rights. It's the Matildas. They 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 they're winning uh, the ratings. They're putting bums on seats in the stadium when they play. So uh, why, why wouldn't you back it? And Michael, the only thing that could really take the Matildas uh, to another level in terms of that public engagement uh, is success. And the 2010 Asian Cup, I think it was probably the first time I uh, engaged with the Matildas and realised sort of who they were. Uh, such a seminal moment. It'd be unbelievable if we could provide another generation with uh, something to sort of latch onto ahead of the World Cup next year. So do you think they can do it? Uh, absolutely, they can do it. They've got one bogey team and that's Japan. We've only won uh, once against Japan in the last 11 times we've played them. They have to overcome Japan, despite the fact they're in transition. I think the Japanese female uh, development system for producing players is excellent. So we can expect them to be as competitive as ever. So that's going to be a big hurdle to overcome. But there's a good reason why they want to win. And that's that this is the first time in the history of the Women's Asian Cup there's prize money, Willem. Hey. The winner's going to receive $1 million US dollars the runner-up, $500,000, and the losing semi-finalists, $150,000 each. Interestingly enough, you know, if you watch these things, the collective bargaining agreement that is in play is the prize money shared between the players. So if they like a dollar, Willem, there's a little bit riding on this one. The Mariners, they're through to the uh, FFA Cup final, Rob, and they can dream of their first silverware since 2013 after a Marco Urenia penalty saw them pass Sydney in the semi-final. Sydney could be considered unlucky. VAR wasn't on hand to rule on the penalty. I think it was pretty clear that contact came from outside the box, but they had leaned very heavily on Andrew Redmayne to keep them square to that point. The other semi-final will be played between Melbourne Victory and Wellington in Geelong on January 29. And a lot of Victory fans not happy now that that has been played down the highway. But Rob, the story here is the, manners, uh, the Mariners, rather, uh, Ray Gattleby, Cocker Hoop, they were the little club who could, then they were the little club who couldn't get off the bottom of the ladder for years and years. But Nick Montgomery and Alan Stacey before that deserve huge credit. Uh, this would be uh, this would be fantastic. Uh, and I would also suspect that they'll be hosting it in Gosford. Yeah, well, you know, you've already credited Nick Montgomery and, and he does deserve plenty of credit because after Stachich's departure, there were plenty prepared to death ride the Mariners. But we've always loved the Mariners on this show. They're, the, as you say, the, the little club that could. They keep on keeping on. They've been through the harshest of half times. They've had the, the crazy uh, uh, recruitment of uh, one of the world's greatest athletes, which uh, got them <laughs> plenty of attention. Um, but uh, Usain Bolt wasn't quite able to deliver on the field. So they've moved on from that. Um, they've still got the, the grandfather of football, Matt Simon, they're um, leading the cultural way within that club and and some great young names that are, uh, are involved. So for them to get to the final of the FFA Cup, that's a big, big achievement. And if they win the FFA Cup, they'll be in the running to play in the Asian Champions League. Uh, the draw for that competition was held this week. Melbourne City, they're the only Australian club that is so far confirmed uh, to take part. They've drawn BG Patum United, Johnham Dragons and United City FC of the Philippines. All six matches are going to be played in a hub from April 15 to May the 1st. Sydney FC and the winners of the FFA Cup uh, will need to win two single leg matches, so two rounds of qualifiers to reach the group stage. Uh, those qualifiers will begin from March the 8th. Around the grounds, Kevin Muskets, Yokohama of John, John Book Motors, Hong An Gialei of Vietnam, and a qualifier which could be one of the Australian sides. Uh, Michael, in this new 40 team format, this is the second time we've had 40 teams, but the first time Australian teams have been involved. Uh, you need to finish top to guarantee progression uh, and having admittedly not seen a lot of BG Patum United or United City FC you'd think that would be achievable for Melbourne City? Yeah that one is achievable no doubt about it um, my favourite competition is the Asian Champions League and at last the Australians have sorted out the calendar which means that uh, the teams can participate fully 
and um, it is the ultimate test for um, our clubs and uh, our development pathways for us to be competitive because we know with the A-League's salary cap that uh, we go into this tournament with many, many, many less financial resources than most of our competitors, including the ones in Thailand and the Philippines, believe it or not. So uh, it will be interesting, but if any team has the depth in the squad to really compete in the Champions League in the formats that it's going to be played, it's Melbourne City. Let's hope they get out of the group and get on a bit of a roll. And on the other side of the groups, Michael, what's happened to the Iranian sides? Pasopoulos, Estaglal, and Gol Gohar Surjan FC. The AFC have ruled that uh, they haven't fulfilled the mandatory criteria. They're Gonskis. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I think there's a lot of politics involved in that, but I'm not really sure the reasons why, what the criteria has been. But um, Iranian football, <clears throat> you know, there's some pretty serious sanctions on Iran, and including the travel of its citizens. So there is a lot of people within football in the Middle East who say that if um, the Iranians could travel freely, that really 40% of the Iranian Premier League would be playing in Europe and other countries in the Middle East. And I think that's probably got something to do with it. But um, it is a disappointing outcome because those are very, very big and historic clubs you're talking about. Let's wade into the dark and dirty and sometimes ugly world of soccer Twitter. News Corp journalist Michael Kane attended the first half of the A-League women's match between Newcastle and Perth on Sunday, but felt compelled to tweet that he wouldn't waste his time with the second. The tweet then read that apart from Lisa Devanna, the rest of the players out there would be schooled by under-16 boys. Kane later took the tweet down, but not because he changed his tune. He said he only did it because Lisa Devanna had uh, had asked him to. Now, Michael, you've been biding your time in our group chats this week. Uh, ready to uh, bang the feet on the, the picket, picket fence, Dennis Lilly style. Uh, here's your chance to uh, say your bit. Well, it's not so much that. It's I just get a little bit frustrated with people who compare women's football to men's. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just, it's just not logical. I've seen many um, friendly matches between W League teams and under 15, under 16, under 14 um, W League academy teams. And... The women um, are much more technically proficient than the boys, but the boys just run away from them because they just have more athletic capacity. So, look, it's just a, it's just a mindless, stupid, ill-advised, dumb tweet to do. It really does reflect on his understanding of women's football and more importantly he was the journalist who threw a grenade into the whole issue around Lisa and it probably reflects on his um, perspective and narrative behind all of that so I thought it was a hugely disappointing tweet and um, I can see the credibility of this uh, this journalist uh, uh, evaporating before our eyes. So Rob Michaels uh, had the big sit down with Mark Viduka. He's then had the Lisa Devanna story, which as Michael said, was a bit of a hand grenade. Uh, and now having built up some credibility through that, uh, this is this has come about in a pretty unsolicited and uh, I agree with Michael, pretty sexist uh, tweet. Yeah, I guess 320 odd episodes in, anyone who listens to this show knows that we don't always agree with each other just for the sake of agreeing with each other. And this is one of the occasions where you can uh, call it game, set, match because, you know, I'm, I'm on board as well. Um, women's sport has had a, um, a legacy of lack of support, lack of funding um, and, and lack of attention in the press for many, many years. And uh, and to take a cheap shot like that, it, it was just unnecessary. I mean, Edge is the one who knows more about women's football on this show than than any of us and would know that you know that that sort of tweet when it might be picked up by a professional player um, an amateur player a young 
girl who's trying to make her way. It just feels like a, a kick in the shins, and it's it's just not only um, unnecessary and inaccurate, but it's it just misses the temperature of the times entirely. So I think he'll be embarrassed with what he's done, and uh, I don't think an apology would be out of order if uh, if somebody who he trusts and respects in the industry gets into his ear. And finally, a bid from the UK and Ireland to host the 2030 World Cup is said to be scrapped after the FA received advice it would oppose FIFA's preference to host the tournament in new regions. Instead, the bid will shift its focus to the 2028 Euros, which will be the primary focus of the FA's upcoming board meeting. The associations of Scotland, Wales, Ireland and Northern Ireland are yet to publicly back the shift, but are believed to be on board following advice from UEFA. Two points uh, spring to mind for me here, and the first of which I'll throw to you on, Rob, uh, how can the UK deem itself fit to host a tournament after the disgrace of the Euros final? Exactly. I, I think that uh, the, the sensible thing to do would be for them to, to, to back down because uh, uh, the uh, the behaviour during the recent Euros final was uh, was beyond the pale. Uh, we, we talk about uh, football around the world on, on this show and if it had happened in just about any other country, can you imagine the UK press and how they would have come down on any other country for their behaviour? Uh, I, I think that they've them damned themselves with silence, apart from a few exceptions who have uh, who've gotten on, on the front foot and uh, and come in with the uh, uh, the long handle and uh, and, and whacked the, uh, the, the people who were in charge of putting that game on, who were in charge of policing it, who uh, allowed the whole uh, scenario to happen. So, look, for me, I, as much as we love football in the UK, um, I think uh, they, they just sort of ought to be banned for a full cycle and, uh, and that ought to be punishment uh, or would be punishment enough. And Michael, we know with the expanded World Cup, uh, you're no longer going to have single countries hosting World Cups. It's always going to have to be a joint bid. But have we seen the end of World Cups being played in, for lack of a better term, heartland football countries? No, I don't think we're seeing the end of that at all. I, I do think that um, you know it will take a different shape moving forward because of the size of the event uh, and the number of cities are going, that are going to be required to host it uh, properly. But it doesn't rule out the, the heartland um, people from doing it. There's no question about that. Uh, you know, I think we've got a lot to look forward to with expanded World Cup, um, both on the women's side and also the men's side going forward. It's going to take a new. Uh, it, it really will take the sport to uh, another stratosphere. And, um, you know, I, I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about uh, multi-country um, bids and uh, the expansion of, of this event. And, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a hell of a ride. All right. Well, I'm well done. Um... Okay, stick around. Amy Chapman, uh, former Matilda herself, uh, she's one of our favourite commentators with Channel 10 right now. The Matilda's Asian Cup campaign gets underway on Friday night. If you're listening to it on the weekend, you'll have already known the result, but we're going to talk about the uh, the tournament in itself with Amy regardless uh, after the break. So stick around. Amy Chapman next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And the Matilda's Asian Cup campaign commences on Friday evening. If you're listening to this, you may already have heard the result uh, over the weekend. But as we record, it is 24 hours from that game being played with plenty riding on the tournament for Tony Gustafsson's side ahead of next year's Home World Cup. Former Matilda and now 10 commentator Amy Chapman joins us. How are you, Amy? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, real good, Amy. Hey, uh, look, 
we had big expectations around a medal in Tokyo. That uh, didn't happen, but a creditable fourth position. Uh, we've really had uh, a reality check over the past 12 months. Uh, most Australian sports fans got used to the Matildas being in the top 10 and expected them to sit there with the, you know, the plethora of stars playing in the top competitions around the world. But this tournament, uh, off the back of two losses, we've won it once. Um, the uh, top-ranked team in the world, North Korea, aren't competing. Japan is in a transition phase. There really is only one expectation in the football community, and that is to win the whole thing. That's a pretty solid shout, and I think that would be the expectation from within the Matildas camp. We've sort of given them a fair bit of flexibility with the friendlies and trying different things, but um, it is a different expectation when we're in tournament mode. And Tony's had enough time with the players now that um, he said he always says, judge me in the tournament. So I guess that is what we are going to do. And, and hopefully the girls do put on a great performance. It'll certainly be a slower opening few games, but as that builds into it, um, the expectation is that they will win. They've got a bit of revenge to get, uh, you know, on Japan because they've, they've trumped them in the last two finals and they haven't won since 2010. So, um, I think the girls will be disappointed with anything but uh, the big trophy. Well, the big news out of the D Dubai training camp was that Holly McNamara and Courtney Vine have been selected to fill the last two uh, vacant places in the squad. Um, a lot of analysts were suggesting maybe there'd be one attacking player, one defender. With the, I, I want to ask you about Holly and Courtney specifically in a moment. But before I do that, can you just reflect on the defensive options that Tony has? Because in particular, through this most recent period um, since Tony has been in, uh, in charge. It's, it's been all about our defensive failings in key moments. So um, what do you think is the best defensive structure that he's got and, uh, and who will he go with? Yeah, well, and this is one of those conundrums that a lot of coaches have when they have their own philosophy about how they play. And obviously, Tony likes to play with three at the back and with three at some stage, sometimes five. So he has those really speedy fullbacks. And the best player to do that is, of course, the likes of Ellie Carpenter. Um, but he just hasn't had the personnel to play with the best players in their best positions, as we've all witnessed over the last sort of 18 months. So um, I think we all were in a bit of shock when Polkinghorne and Kennedy were absent at the same time. I don't I don't mind giving young players a go, but I, it does really worry me when they're side by side with another inexperienced player. So I... Don't think that was the right choice. And in hindsight, I'm sure he wouldn't have done that. But that's why I think pulling back in someone like Ivy Lewick is actually a great move. I've mentioned this before. Ivy's a bit Mark Milligan-esque in the Matildas. She can play in multiple roles. She's incredibly experienced and intelligent footballer. And she can help that next generation grow. So bringing her back in, I have my full support with that decision because she could almost solidify a position in there, which allows you to take a risk on someone like Courtney Nevin, for example. So I still think the best back three is a, is a combination of Ellie, Polkinghorne and Kennedy. I'd still stick with those three. Or you shuffle Steph Catley back in and, and let Ellie Carpenter fly forward. So I still think that's the best. But I can't imagine that their defence will be tested too much in the first few weeks. I think it'll be their patience in scoring. Um, but hopefully some of these youngsters can step up. Absolutely. Look, for me, it's about where to play Steph Catley because we know if she can get forward, her delivery of um, you know crosses into the into the box uh, is is world class. And if she's forced to play in the centre of defence because of injury or suspension, it's just one of those uh, interesting developments that might happen with tournament football. We know tournament football games come fast. Some players need a break. Some players 
may get injured. There'll be a suspension, no doubt, at some point. So it is all about the, the, the mix of the defensive unit. But let's now talk about what I think is a great story for A-League women's football and a great story for Courtney Vine and Holly McNamara because they're in form and they've been picked. I've been a bit critical of selections um, on potential rather than form, but I think this is the first time that we've seen some new players injected into the squad that have been picked on form. So you've been watching Courtney and Holly play extensively uh, for their clubs, Sydney and Melbourne, uh, Sydney FC and Melbourne City. What can you tell us about what they will add to the squad and uh, do you think they'll get some time? Great questions and, and I couldn't agree with you more on the, the basis of selecting on form as opposed to reputation. I think I do agree and even Courtney Vine came out at one point and said they've skipped our generation. Uh, they've skipped that early 20s, uh, 20 to 25, and they've just gone straight to these teenagers. And I kind of, you know, I, I quite enjoyed her confidence to come out and say, have a look at us, look at us. You, you, couldn't, you can't just go to what's this next five years going to look like. Let's let's pick the best players right now. And Courtney Vine and Holly McNamara are both of those. And McNamara's got a great story. She actually emerged onto the scene at the same time as Mary Fowler. They were both 15-year-olds and everybody was talking about how good these players were going to be. And then she did her ACL at only 15. So we've not even seen her in the in the A-League at all. So she has come onto this scene and her skill set, her dribbling ability, her pace, her eye for goal and creativeness is exceptional. It is Mary Fowler-esque. Um, and Courtney Vine is just technically very, very gifted. She's plays on a lot longer, uh, sorry, a lot more on that wing position, but she has so much pace uh, and really impressive decision making. I think Courtney has been the one that's stood out even more so for Tony. So I think we'll see her early on. And I think they'll want to rest Sam Kerr. Um, they'll want to give other players an opportunity, particularly when Australia will have so much possession. This is Box to Box. We're talking to former Matilda Amy Chapman, Channel 10 commentator, ahead of the Asian Women's World Cup, which Australia are the favourites for and big expectations from home ahead of next year's Women's World Cup. Amy, look, there's been a, a lot of uh, stories uh, uh, around the uh, uh, Matildas off the park in the past couple of years. Those of us who follow football, those who don't know all about them, uh, there was an article published in the BBC in the last 48 hours uh, and the headline was Australian women prepare for home World Cup against backdrop of historical abuse allegations. Now, it was an interesting time for this article to drop um, and the level of detail that appeared in it uh, was uh, such that it, it was very well researched and, and prepared by the journalist. Uh, is this the sort of thing that gets noticed? And if it not, um, what is the, uh, the feeling inside the camp as to the, you know, the ongoing investigations by Football Australia and the associated uh, uh, investigators independent system that uh, is managing this uh, uh, scenario, this story through Sport Integrity Australia? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not aware of that one that's come out in the last 48 hours. And I think a lot of people struggled with the initial um, articles that came out and the the lack of context and um, research and the, the journalism behind that, I don't think did that story justice or did the game justice. So I think if this has been done better and it's better research and has better context, then I think the players and even former players understand that as the platform of women's football grows and the Matilda's spotlight grows, that there's going to be light shone, shone on every element. And the, the history of women's football to get where it was 30 years to, um, to now, 
there's there's been a lot to there is a lot to talk about and there's a lot of uh, professionalism or lack of lack of professionalism throughout the time that also um, is is a fascinating insight to see how tough it has been for female players um, and not to take away from the, the question you've just asked, but flipping it back to the to the Asian Cup, there are some incredible stories of resilience coming out with some of these teams that are playing in the Asian Cup. We see India for the first time, Iran are there. So it is a total different environment, women's football and the things you have to overcome to, to, to achieve where they're at now. And I think um, shining a light on some of these countries that don't have it easy at all is, is going to be a great... So there's a lot of side stories with the Asian Cup there and... Um, yeah, I'll be interested to read that article, but I don't think it affects the players so much um, because they can really only focus on the experience that they have had right there and then and the team morale that they have and everything's really positive. Tony has a wonderful culture there from everything I understand. So, um, yeah, I'm sure they'll be interested and the FA will also be, um, you know, pretty proactive in making sure it's a safe and inclusive environment for everyone. Well, I'll tell you one thing the players will be absolutely aware of, and it will be front of mind, is that we've only beaten Japan once from the last 11 matches. They loom, even though they're a team in transition, which Rob said, they loom as our bogey team big time. And um, I noticed uh, in interviews that Tony did over the last sort of 72 hours or so, he has uh, put this front and centre. He said, if we want to win the Asian Cup, we've got to beat Japan. So it's very clear that he's made a big a bit of an issue of it. I mean, what's your what's your um, insight into the psyche of the team, knowing that you know we 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 have really been towed up by Japan recently, and not only at senior level, they have absolutely destroyed us with some of these uh, girls that have played at junior levels too. I mean, Mary Fowler, Kylie, Kyra Cooney, Cross. Um, that group, um, Courtney Vine's group, they've been, I mean, they've been destroyed by Japan. So, you know, they loom as the is the big bogey. Um, what's your view of how we should take on that task mentally more than anything? Yeah, I think that the girls will be wanting to sort of take it back game by game, but know that obviously that is the end goal and the stage is set for the Matildas to play Japan. They don't meet them earlier than the final um, as the path as the path goes. So I think they feel like the stage is set for a bit of redemption there. And it has, you mentioned, this is a bit of a transition period for the Japanese team. The last time that they won, they had their average age of their team was late twenties. Um, so now they've brought in some youngsters. So I would honestly say the Matildas are the favourites at the moment, but we haven't actually played against many Asian teams in the past 18 months where we're used to playing heavily against Asian teams. And I, I don't mind that we've tried to, um, prepare for the World Cup by playing against European teams. And you can see we got caught out a few times on that. So whether the Matildas are as prepared to play against Asian teams as they usually are, I don't think so. Um, but I think now we've got so many players playing at high level all over the world. Um, I think the Matildas will be a step above. But then again, the Japanese are so good at holding possession Um that they're, a lot of Asian countries, North Korea, the same South Korea, they're exceptional at maintaining possession. Um, so I think Australians and, and European countries can get quite frustrated with that. So, um, But I'm sure they'll, they'll feel confident that they can beat them. And a lot of the girls have gone over and played in Japan as well. So they understand that the game and, um, you know, how popular women's football is over there as well. But everything is absolutely on the line here. It certainly is. It is on the line, no doubt about it. Uh, look, there's a lot been 
I mean, we talk about Sam Kerr all the time. We There's a lot of focus on the new, younger generation that's emerging, Mary Fowler, Kyla, Kyra Cooney-Cross. We've talked about Holly and Courtney. But there's a player I want to ask you about who's about to enter her fourth Asian Cup. And she was there the last time we won it. Her name's Kyra Simon. There's been times over the last four or five years that I thought Kyra might have hit the, hit the wall. You know, she'd had some pretty big injuries to overcome. But she's done it. I mean... What sort of influence will she have um, in this tournament, do you think? Because um, she's been there, she's done it, she understands tournament play. She always seems to get herself up for the big tournament. So I know she missed the World Cup in 2019 in France. But, you know, what can Kaya bring uh, to this team in, on her fourth journey to the Asian Cup? Only 30 years of age, by the way. Yeah, and that's great. Well, I saw some footage recently of, of that uh, penalty that she scored for them to win back in 2010. And even Kaya, Sam Kerr, they got such baby faces. So it's been quite fascinating to watch these, um, not only these, these people and players grow. Um, we've watched them for the past 12 years become adults to grow into the players that they are. So I think it's been quite unique to watch that journey because I would say Sam Kerr would have been 15 at that time and maybe Kaya was 16 or 17. So they're obviously grown a lot as players and got a lot more world experience playing football. But Kaya brings something else as a number 10. She can sort of play as a, as a false nine or a number 10, but she brings something different to the usual 10s they have. So Caitlin Ford, usually Katrina Gorey, Chloe Legazzo, those players, and now Kaya Cooney-Cross. She has um, almost this unpredictable touch about her. And so I think she, she's a really good little X factor to bring on. I don't think she's a 90-minute player anymore because there's a lot of competition in that position as well. But she just certainly has the X factor and the ability to change games. And Amy, to wrap it up, uh, there are three games in the group stage. Obviously, we've got the Indonesia match on Friday night. But the one that uh, w most... Uh, fans will be interested in is the, the match against the Philippines, 9pm uh, kickoff, all of the games live on uh, the 10 Network on Monday night with their brand new coach, Alan Stachic, uh, ranked 64 in the world, uh, a respectable ranking. Uh, what's your thinking there? Uh, does uh, the old coach um, uh, bring some uh, sufficient knowledge into uh, into this game that, that, that might make this a, a banana peel? <laughs> yeah, I think if there's any coach that can turn a team around, it would be Stadge. He hasn't had a huge amount of time to work with this team. I love that he's come back into the women's game. I was, I think a lot of the football community was sad that we lost him from the women's game because he actually has developed all, most of this golden generation. He's had the likes of Kaya Simon, Chloe Legazzo since they were, you know, nine, ten years old and brought them through to the players they are. So he certainly has an in-depth knowledge of the Matildas team. There's no doubt about that. And my understanding is he's actually gone shopping a little bit in the US over into Europe for players, potentially at college level, for example, who have Filipino backgrounds. So I think expect the unexpected with Stadge. I don't think he could have had a massive influence on their style and without getting to know the players as, as you know, in a short period of time. But I think that'll be a fascinating game to watch. And I also, but I do think the toughest game in this first few will be Thailand. Um, and certainly perhaps Indonesia, which, you know, the girls will have nerves. You're playing in India. There's no crowds uh, and different pitch. Sometimes playing in these uh, Indonesia sort of Southeast Asian countries as well, the field almost feels a bit like cabbage. 
that's a weird <laughs> thing to describe, but I've played there a number of times myself. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, the, description. yeah, the ball sits. That's exactly oh, right. I'm like, I feel like I'm in someone's veggie garden, but the, the ball sits higher, so it's much easier to get underneath it and things. So it does take a little bit of time to get into the rhythm of different conditions and, and all sorts of things. So um, I'm going to use that one from now on, Amy. <laughs> Southeast Asian fields. Cabbage patch. Cabbages. <laughs> yeah, but it'll be a fascinating few games, definitely. Hey, Amy, uh, thank you so much for uh, your insights. Uh, those of a former Matilda are better than uh, anyone could reasonably expect from uh, from most pundits, and uh, you're doing a brilliant job on Channel 10. We're really enjoying the work. We'll be watching the tournament with interest, and uh, hopefully the Matildas will get the silverware, and uh, we can all look forward to, to next year in the World Cup uh, coming off uh, the back of, uh, of some success. Thanks so much, guys. Love your work. No worries, Amy Chapman. Great chatting to her. Right, stick around. We're going to talk more Matildas and more Socceroos after the break. Willem is uh, just waiting to jump into the best of his work. So stick around. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. The box. Uh, it was a great chat with Amy Chapman there. Really looking forward to the Asian Cup, the Women's Asian Cup, and the Socceroos next week. We'll talk about that in a moment with Willem. But before we do, it's game set save at Chemist Warehouse. Yes, the Australian Open is on, and with half price off the recommended retail price on the Nature Zone range, you better get into Chemist, Chemist Warehouse as soon as you can. Get huge savings on Nature's Zone Super B Complex 75 tablets, just $13.99. Nature's Zone Glucosamine Sulfate with Chondroitin, 320 tablets. That's a lot, but just $29.49. It excludes exclusive bulk sizes. Also, save on sun care. It's getting hotter and hotter. This summer might have started slowly, but it's pretty warm out there around the country with 40% off the recommended retail price on the Cancer Council and Dermavine range, 30% off the recommended retail price on Ego Sunsense, Banana Boat and the Event range, and half price off the Reef and Invisible Zinc range. Chemist Warehouse, the greatest savings, gentlemen, are every single day. All right, Willem, uh, we've talked to Amy at length about the Matilda's Asian Cup, but you've got plenty more for us. I do. On the Socceroos primarily, Rob, for the Green and Gold Army, they are up against it, but that's going to make it all the more sweet when they qualify for the 2022 World Cup. But once they get there, they'll need you. Sign up to the Green and Gold Army mailing list today and be among the first to know when packages go on sale for the Qatar World Cup. Head to ggatravel.com. Jackson Irvine, he's had a, a week to remember with St. Pauli. They knocked Borussia Dortmund out of the DFB Pokal, which is the German Cup, and have advanced to the last eight. Uh, and making that even better was the fact that uh, Borussia Dortmund are the holders, Rob, so they march on. Uh, and they've also pinched a late goal in the league to remain top of the Bundesliga too. So all sweet with uh, Jackson and St. Pauli. Oh, going beautifully. You said, look at that um, ladder. It's a, an amazing season. Jackson, after all of the tough times he had after he left Hull City, uh, COVID hit, he wasn't able to get a club. He rehabilitated himself in the Scottish Premier League with Hibs and... Um, Landed in a culturally perfect club in FC St. Pauli, and uh, they're going to get promoted um, if the things keep going their way. Um, it looks like uh, um, that uh, they'd have to have a, a real implosion to stop that. So we'll, we better get Jackson on real soon to find out what, what's going on over there in uh, at uh, St. Pauli, because whatever it is, it's going well. 
I'm going to chat Riley McGree in a second, but there was another Aussie to move to the uh, well to the one of the pyramids in England this week, and it was Jay Rich Bagalu who signed for Accrington Stanley after a spell with the Crystal Palace youth team. He was straight into the action, Michael. He played in a one-all draw against Bailey Wright and Sunderland, and could be in action again this weekend against Ipswich Town. Uh, this is the man who Graham Arnold played as a striker in the dying stages of Olympics. That was uh, that was an amazing uh, and very strange move. Uh, but if ever a man is ready. <laughs> to physically progress from youth team football to seniors. It is this guy. He is a beast. He is a beast and good luck to him. We hope he does really well and we hope he uh, is uh, very, very successful. And I'm still giggling about that uh, uh, decision by Arnie to uh, whack the big fella up front, even though that's uh, not what he does. <laughs> Arnie, oh no. Uh, Ange Postacoglu and Celtic, they've closed the gap on Rangers to four points after the Hoops dismissed the Hibs 2-0. That was their first match back from the winter break. Rangers across town dropped two points to Aberdeen. Milos Steganek's been offered a deal by La Liga side Levante. Uh, the only issue is they're sitting stone-cold motherless last in La Liga. Uh, so as a result, he's had his head turned and it looks like he's headed to the Columbus crew in the States. Um, Michael, he really has had an eclectic career. Red Star, Belgrade, Yokohama, Al-Hilal, uh, and now to the crew, the Columbus crew. Uh, and he's a good fella, and he uh, he loves he loves um, the clubs that he played with. He's got a good relationship with all the fans. So let's see where he pops up. I'm sure wherever he pops up, he's still um, you know going to be an important uh, member of our squad uh, uh, heading into this uh, these last four do-or-die World Cup qualifier uh, group matches. Let's have a word about Riley McGree. Uh, he has moved from Charlotte FC to Middlesbrough and Adelaide have pocketed uh, a sell-on fee, but it really has highlighted Australia's lack of engagement with the transfer market. Uh, and Vince Regari has done a lot of digging and reporting on this in the past week. Uh, head to the, uh, the nine papers if you uh, want to have a read. Uh, 2021 figures have shown that Australian clubs received just $1.1 in transfer fees uh, coming in. And James Johnson's piped up. He said, well, not piped up. He, he doesn't pipe up. He has uh, very uh, important things to say. Uh, he said that clubs waiving international training compensation fees and failing to drive home sell-on clauses into sales are key reasons for transfer leakage. He's also said that an overhaul to the domestic transfer system has been written up. It's on the table, uh, but hasn't been supported by the club. So, Rob, uh, interesting that he'd go public as a tactic in negotiations. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, throwing a little hand grenade in there um, is the last option and it works. So if you've got nothing left to lose, then you might as well, um, you know, go with uh, with your, your last option and uh, see how you go. So just the figures to round off on the story, Middlesbrough have paid 5.5 million, that's Australian, uh, for McGree from Charlotte, and that could rise to 8.3 million depending on his performance. So Adelaide will receive between 10 and 25% of that, which is apparently standard market rate. Uh, let's have a quick whip around the domestic leagues. Firstly, Brisbane Roar against Perth Glory. It wasn't a sight for sore eyes on uh, Wednesday night. 42 days since the Glory last played, and it was only the Roar's second game back after a, a spell too. Daniel Sturridge, Rob, he very nearly had the uh, the winner from a free kick. It was great to see him play 20 minutes. And if he's hung around this log, he must have a fair bit of determination to actually play in purple and, and stay around in Australia. Yeah, it's good to see. He Look, he, he had a couple of missteps uh, with uh, with a couple of, uh, I think, social media posts a, a few weeks back, probably out of frustration. But uh, it's good to see that he's actually still got the goods on the park and, and Perth have got games in hand. So um, hopefully um, with this Omicron uh, wave, appearing to gradually decline that uh, things will start to to settle down a little bit more we've seen uh, the uh, premier league make some changes or well, they're about to announce some changes to to the limitations so hopefully our uh, uh, apl will uh, will take note of what uh, what's being done over there so that we can see more consistent 
uh, football and, and and teams like Perth and Sturridge himself can get on the park and uh, and get rid of the backlog. Matches this weekend, Sydney FC to host Perth on Saturday, Brisbane to host Adelaide on Sunday, and on Tuesday, victory to host Sydney FC in the rescheduled Big Blue. To the A-League Women's, quickly, Michael, what is going just on at Just before Canberra? the A-League Williams, William, just, before, yeah. just wanted to make note of a couple of things. Um, Lachlan Brook has uh, returned to Adelaide United uh, on loan from English Premier League outfit Brentford FC, the Adelaide... Yep. Guys brought him back. And Apostolos Giannou, uh, we'd lost sight of oh. where he was. He was in China, but he wasn't getting a game. So he signed for MacArthur. Jake Brimmer signed for another two seasons with Melbourne Victory. Melbourne Victory's also stockpiled Luke Perso, a young Australian youth international. And Melbourne City has signed Carl Jenkinson yes. from Nottingham Forest. So plenty going on. And the transfer window's just open. Next week, we might cover the rules in the transfer window. They're really interesting for the A-League, but I just thought I'd go through those. Welcome back to Australia, Apostolos Giannou. Uh, I, I want to ask you about Canberra in the A-League women's. Fourth last season. Uh, very excited to see Heyman-Ash Sykes combination uh, back uh, reunited, but it just hasn't worked for them. And now, defensively, they're struggling as well. They've shipped six against Sydney, who are going from strength to strength. So Canberra, uh, ninth midway through the season. Certainly not how it was uh, meant to pan out. Well, Canberra has not only um, been plummeting down the uh, uh, A-League W table, you know, they've had a lot of change off the field too. They're obviously part of capital football. Uh, they administer them. There's been leadership issues there. I think this probably, uh, the direction they're going on the table probably reflects the competency of what's happening off the park. And we want a very strong Canberra United in the A-League women's competition. And at the moment, they're not pulling their weight. Uh, all the money's gone to Michelle Heyman when probably they could have done a better job with uh, with, with, with recruiting. Um, the club is in free fall, and um, you know there's they need to have a, a really solid um, review about what they're going to do with them moving forward because it's been a great tradition and um, a great place to develop uh, women's football as Canberra, and at the moment it's not. Matches coming up this week, and we've got Adelaide against Wellington, who are still win winless, but were 2-0 up against Brisbane. Unfortunately, watched it slip, but they will get there uh, hard enough to start a new club, uh, let alone in another country. That's on Friday night. Brisbane will host Newcastle on Sunday, and Perth will host the Wanderers on Sunday night, Rob. And before we go, uh, I'm not sure whether you guys saw this, um, but in the News Limited newspapers, I did a double take when I, I saw a headline about Ernie Merrick. I thought he's Ernie coming back, and uh, he is, but he's not coming back uh, to a role in football. He's going to be a mentor to St Kilda coach Brett Ratton in the AFL. So interesting times. Uh, Ratton uh, said he was excited about leveraging Merrick's experience. The Scotsman, twice named A-League Coach of the Year, as we know, um, had a stint in charge of Hong Kong's national team, coached the Phoenix and the Jets. He says, it's just somebody I can talk to who knows what we are trying to do and then someone who I can talk to about certain things. So Ernie says, I'm a good listener and I just want to be someone who can listen and make good suggestions and discuss some of the issues that Brett might be dealing with. And a funny story at the end of the article in the, the Herald Sun was that Ernie's first taste of Australian football was uh, a St Kilda home game after he moved to Australia in 1975. He uh, he got to know uh, the then Saints stars, the legend Trevor Barker and the rough man Robbie Muir after they crashed a party at his house. Who would have thought all these years later from 1975 when uh, he was a young lad um, just finding his way that he's now going to be a mentor to the team with the longest drought in football, 1966 after to the Melbourne Demons won this competition last year. And you know what my uh, useless trivia fact about St Kilda is, boys? Uh, the Barry Breen was 19 years old when he kicked that famous point. 
No, good point. No, I was born the day that St Kilda won their grand final, the 24th of September 1966. There you go. There you go. Uh, Edge, how would Ernie have gone at the Saints disco? He would have gone all right, just quietly. He would have done very, very well. Very funny guy, Ernie. He would have had uh, a, a few good opening lines for for um, potential targets to uh, for Ernie. But um, can I just say, um, last week, Melissa Barbieri um, won the game for Melbourne City with two wonderful world-class saves. A big, uh, as we record this on Thursday, the 20th of January, a very big happy birthday to the four-time Olympian and two-time World Cup former Matilda's goalkeeper who's still going around in the A-League women's competition and, um, and doing fa- fabulous stuff. We won't say how old she is, but she's older than 40 by a bit. Um, and Melissa Bubbs Barbieri, a big happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Bubs, from all your friends here on Box to Box and your special mate, Edge, who uh, is one of your biggest fans. Well done, Edge. Nice shout out there. All right. Well, guys, I did notice if there was one thing that uh, stood out to me in the past two episodes of Box to Box while I wasn't, was uh, I've already mentioned a noticeable lack of Liverpool presence. Now, uh, the only way to deal with that is obviously to get a Liverpool player onto the show. So Stephen Warnock is going to join us. He's not going to talk about the Reds. He's going to talk about Rafa Benitez's departure and what the hell is going on at Everton. So stick around. Stephen Warnock next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box and we've watched what seems to be the inevitable decline of Rafael Benitez's time at Everton and it seemed to always uh, going to be ending that way. Stephen Warnock, former Liverpool man, uh, is on the line with us. Stephen, is that a fair assessment? Was it always going to win this way? It seemed it. Um, from the outset, it was a strange appointment. It was a brave appointment by, by Everton and it was brave by Rafa Benitez to think that he could step across the park and go to go to Goodison and, and try and make well, make it work, um, make something very, very small, what seemed impossible, possible, which was to change the fans' opinion of him. Um, and he started well in his tenure. And then, obviously, with the, the sacking the other day, you have to say that it was inevitable that it was coming. Stephen, you've obviously worked under Rafa Benitez. I'm sure you, you wish him well for whatever he, he goes on to do. But in your experience, what, what kind of coach was he? And why do you think it didn't work out at Everton beyond beyond the kind of the, the sort of the loathing from the fans? I think the big thing for me is, is that Rafa's a, a very good tactician, uh, or he was when he came to Liverpool. And he came in, came into Liverpool with the respect of winning La Liga and forming a, a, a Valencia team that were, were entertaining, but very hard to play against. When he came to Liverpool, it was evident that his tactical skills were, were, his, were his quality. His man management skills were, were nowhere near, though. And, and I think that's where the game's evolved in that. Players need an arm around them. Um, they, they need to feel wanted. They need to feel loved. You're not going to get that from Rafa. Um, he's cold. He's. I think what he tries to do is reverse psychology. He, he, he tries to not want to, to give you any praise, so you try and gain it even more. I think Stephen Gerrard wrote about it in his book, um, and that is something that's very clear. But the, the big difference is is that when you, when you come from Liverpool and you step into the changing room at Everton, um, but you've been... 
away for, for years to China a couple of years and you come into the market and you don't change your ways and you don't evolve with the way football's gone, then you're always going to struggle. Um, I look at Rafa Benitez and I look at Jose Mourinho at the moment and that's the, the sort of thing that I see with both of them is that they haven't seemed to evolve with the way football's evolved and it, listen, the game's still the same, but the way that you manage players and the way that you look after them, that's the biggest change in football now is is that a lot of the players need need to feel more love. The question, I guess, is begged that is there the man they need right under their nose? Duncan Ferguson, he's been appointed as the interim manager. He, uh, he had uh, some good results when he uh, he took over as caretaker uh, before Rafa arrived, uh, beat um, Chelsea under Frank Lampard, a couple of draws against Manchester United and Arsenal. Um, is there any discussion at all that he might get the job or, or do you think that he, he might be a good appointment if uh, if they were brave enough not to go for the big name and stick with a bloke who's uh, blue through and through? I think the big thing with Duncan is, is that He's never come out and said he wants the job. He always says he's not ready for it. And I wonder why that is. Is it because he's fearful of becoming Everton manager and not succeeding and losing his legacy as a legend at the club? Whereas when you're an assistant manager, you don't lose that. It's always the manager who gets blamed. And it's it's not really the assistant's fault and someone in the background. I'd like to see him have a go at it. Uh, I think a lot of Everton fans keep on talking about, well, give it Duncan, give it, give him the opportunity. Well, he's got to want to accept it first. But if he does, I'd like to see how he, how he gets on, who he surrounds himself with and things like that. Um, the, the, the biggest name that everyone's talking about at the moment is, is Wayne Rooney. Um, the, the fear is, is, is it too early? But what you have to remember is, is that the job that he's doing at Derby County at the moment He's in a relegation battle and he's thriving. So he's getting the best out of players. He's also getting players taken under his, no- under his nose, left, right and centre because of the administration at the club. So he's, he's showing his skill set as a manager. Now, one thing you would say is, is that it might not necessarily just be Wayne because the best managers in the world surround themselves with a, with a really good staff. And you'd hope that if Wayne went to Everton, that he'd take that staff with him because sometimes it's the mixture of everything in and around you that works so well. Um, and, and that's someone who's being talked about highly. But this, I think that the problem is, is that we keep on saying with Everton, this appointment has to be right. We've said that for the last six years. I mean, seven managers in six years, if you include Duncan Ferguson as the, the interim, and you can actually throw David Unsworth in there as well. Is that a concern? Is that the, they they either don't get enough time as managers, or they're picking the wrong ones? Whoever comes in, Stephen, where, where, where do you see the squad at at the moment? I mean, as we've said, they've been quite a lot of signings over the past few years. They've, they've obviously you know lost one of their best players um, over the last week or so. Passing Villa and Dean. Um, you know the manager's not going to have a lot of t- not a lot of time in the transfer window, whoever it is. So we can probably assume that's not going to happen. He's going to have to make do with what they've got. Is this? Is there enough there, enough characters uh, to get this club out of trouble? Well, the one thing you have got is you've got a goal scorer. If you're Everton, you've got Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Um, hasn't performed since he's come back into the team, 
but hasn't re- Everton haven't really played to his strengths. They haven't played. If, if, for talking sake, if, if if Wayne Rooney came into the club and you watch his Derby County team play, they press high up the pitch, which would suit the likes of Damari Gray and, and Andros Townsend and Calvert-Lewin playing high up that pitch, getting crosses into the box for Calvert-Lewin to feed off. Now, you've got them them two, them three players, if you like, who are capable of creating chances and scoring goals. Then Decore in behind, really big fan of his. I think he's an outstanding box-to-box midfielder who covers the ground extremely well. Centre-backs, I'd probably go with Yerry Mina uh, and Ben Godfrey, who I don't think have been outstanding themselves, but I think with the right manager in charge, I think they could really help them. Where they do suffer Everton is, is full-back positions at the moment. And Mielenko, who's coming to the club, I'm not sure he's an upgrade on Luka Dean. Um, Seamus Coleman's been a, a fantastic servant to the club, but he looks a little bit frustrated and down on confidence. Again, whether a, a new manager can build that up. Jordan Pickford, um, I worry about him. I worry about his temperament uh, quite often when he plays for Everton, but his form has been better of late. Um They've got quality in the squad. They haven't got depth. Um, I think that's one of the things that you definitely say about Everton. But if, if, if a manager was looking at that squad and saying, do you think you can keep them up? 100%. I don't, I don't think you'd even question that because they do have enough quality within the squad. I think there has to be clearer ideas of how they play. Uh, sitting deep doesn't suit them. They don't have, they don't have abund- like abundance of pace within the squad. But they've definitely got more than enough to stay in the league. Well, you answered my question there as to whether they can stay up, uh, Stephen. But uh, with a man as a man who has uh, red, red blood, literally, as well as uh, from his sporting <laughs> allegiances running through his veins, it must be very hard for you to watch the Toffees struggling the way they are. Do you know what the thing with, with, with myself is? Is that my my family are Evertonians, and for the good of the city, I want Everton in the Premier League, and I want them competing at the top half of the league. I want the best players in world football to be attracted to Liverpool and Everton because we want to bring them into Merseyside and we want to showcase what Merseyside's all about and the history of the clubs. Both Everton and Liverpool have got incredible history and we want to continue that. Liverpool have had such a down period throughout the last sort of 20 years and then Jurgen Klopp's come in. He's revitalised the club and put it back on the map. And I want the same for Everton, I really do, because it's for the best of the city and it's for the best of bringing talent through as well. Because local talent then will want to be at these clubs. It won't want to go elsewhere. And I think that's the big thing for me. Um, I know uh, I'm, a, I'm a Liverpool fan through and through, but I do want Everton to do well. I do want them to be successful to a certain degree, not as successful as Liverpool. But I want them in the Premier League 100%. Never want them to be that successful, my friend, uh, especially since I share your allegiances. But with the, the Bramley Dock Stadium uh, <laughs> development in 2024-25, uh, uh, that stadium is not being built for a championship side. So, uh, yes, hopefully um, no. the Blues do stay up and uh, and we see a resurgence and, uh, you know, this bounce back post Rafa uh, is, uh, is positive for them. Yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, that's the big thing. that You want them to do well. Uh, and... I think the, the the stadium's exciting for the club. I think that's the big thing is that you want to attract players to play at great stadiums and things like that. Um, but championship football doesn't doesn't attract players. It it puts a halt on on things as well. So uh, yeah, fingers crossed that they 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 get the right appointment next. Um, who's 
a manager will take them to mid-table and that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's all we'd be happy with, mate. Stephen, thanks again for your time, mate. We always enjoy having a yarn. We enjoy your work uh, listening to uh, podcasts and, uh, and other football broadcasts coming up from the UK and it's a real treat to have it, you on the line on our podcast uh, in Australia and uh, we, uh, we wish you all the best, mate. Stay well and until we talk to you next time. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'll catch up soon. No worries, Stephen Warnock. All right, stick around. Plenty more to talk about. Stoppage time next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Bringing home the show at stoppage time. The fourth official. Well, Edge said a couple of weeks ago when I wasn't here that... I wasn't there, so we could have as much time as we wanted. I think we're going to uh, reprise that um, attitude and uh, and just go on until we run out of stuff to talk about because there is a topic that I wanted to to bring up off the top for Derek, and that is the uh, postponement of the North London derby. Uh, perhaps it might have been a good idea the way that uh, Spurs came back against Leicester. Um, your thoughts? Well, yeah, that was clearly a great result for... Spurs scoring two goals in injury time to beat Leicester 3-2. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually thought Arsenal should have played this game. I mean, even with a a lack of players, um, they say that a lack of players. They've just sent two more players out on loan, Marie and uh, Colosinac, two defenders have gone. And and Arsenal really gamed the system there. They weren't affected by COVID at all. It was a combination of uh, injuries, yes, um, but everyone gets injuries. And uh, um AFCON, but AFCON shouldn't be a reason to call games off. Xhaka, of course, was suspended after his horror tackle against Liverpool. But um, Edge, uh, the Premier League have got themselves in a real pickle over these game cancellation. Where's it going to end? Well, they have, haven't they? And uh, because the the rules haven't been applied consistently, so there's a lot of debate and a little bit of nastiness between clubs because there is a bit of gaming going on, as you suggest. I mean, they should take a leaf out of the Bundesliga um, approach, which is cancel nothing, play the games. And um, when Bayern Munich were complaining because they lost two one, they, they actually lost a game Bayern Munich in the in the in the Bundesliga. Can you believe it? They lost the game because they had to play five 15 year olds. So um, I reckon they should just play. I'm with you. Injuries, COVID, Afcon doesn't matter. Uh, games are games. Get on with it. Um, we're going to live with this virus, so uh, you should play the games. And even with the depleted squad, Arsenal had they had been playing well, Derek. They've been playing well. So they could have gone into that game um, with a bit of confidence. But, uh, you know, we're Arsenal fans. Do, do we really need to be worried about Spurs? I think we probably do. I mean, looking at the league table, that was particularly because they've now won as well. Um, we were sitting pretty in four for a while, a while there. But, yeah, I agree with you that we just need to, you know, we're playing well, keep it going, plenty of exciting players to be able to put on the pitch. So, I wonder if that will come back to haunt them when the time we do, when when we're fully sort of recharged and so are Spurs and we don't do well away at White Hart Lane. So I'll be interested to see how we get on. One one league, which is I want to briefly touch on, gents, which we, we do from time to time, uh, is the championship. Uh, just, just a couple of things, really. This is the league to watch, I reckon. It's very exciting all the way through. Lots to play for. Wanted to flag Fulham in particular. They've exploded in 2022. Yes, okay, they're five points clear at the top, but that only tells only part of the story. They have won their last three games, 6-2 against Birmingham City, 6-2 against Bristol City, and 7-0 
over Reading. Um, so, you know, 19 goals in three games. Their manager, Marco Silva, you all knew that, the ex uh, Watford and Everton. We were talking about Everton earlier. He's one of those people Stephen Warnock was talking about. Um, and they're just going great. And they're just the classic Premier League yo-yo club. They go up and down, up and down. And it look, look, looks like they'll be up if they continue going again like this. But probably the biggest story is Derby County. Uh, they are not bottom anymore. And I repeat, they are not bottom of the championship anymore. Despite a 21-point reduction, they would have been 11th if they didn't get that deduction. They're still in administration. Rooney's losing players right, left, right and centre, as Stephen Warnock mentioned in the interview a little earlier. Um, and they're only eight points behind Reading in 21st place. Uh, so they're undefeated in the last five. Um, the beaten West Brom in that sequence. They've got their biggest rivals, Derby, sorry, uh, Forest next. I'm thinking about my our old friend on the show, Dino, and we should get him on soon to talk about this. But Rob, I think I think this is on. I think this Derby escape could be the story of the season. And I think we should follow it all the way to its conclusion. Yeah, it is right. And a shout out to our old mate, Dino. Uh, I think... Uh... The only thing that that might put a uh, a temporary halt on it is is if Everton do pinch Rooney. Um, that that did obviously uh, cause uh, um, some disruption at the club. But uh, it's an amazing story, really, isn't it? Yeah, we hope they do really well. But uh, let's not forget that there's a little bit of a problem coming down the pipeline for Derby, and that is former Newcastle owner, uh, that wonderful uh, wonderful retail giant of a man. Ashley is, is is putting together a rescue bid to buy the club. Could you imagine if he got a hold of Derby? How would the fans react? He's 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 like kryptonite that bloke. Oh, I, yeah, I think they've already had some pretty shabby people running running the edge, and I, I don't know if yeah, you're right. He's not the ideal man. Um, to talking about people buying out sports assets, stage the Athletic. We we lean on that that uh, forum very much so for a lot of our guests and it does us very well but a little bit of uh, business news on their front yeah absolutely um I, I can remember when the athletic was launched and they started to uh, cherry pick all the wonderful football journalists which we rely on heavily and we love the athletic we just love it i, I mean it's open on my desktop all the time but i i did um uh, see with interest um the fact that the athletic has um, been bought, and 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 the I'll never forget that the uh, the athletic it, it set out to do to to do nothing less than replace newspaper sports sections. And the founder of the athletic, Alex Martha, told the New York Times in 2017, "We will wait every local paper out and let them continuously bleed until we are the last one standing." Well, the same bloke in 2021 has just sold his business to the New York Times for 550 million US dollars. Maybe he can buy Derby County. Well, I mean, that, that sort of money, that would clear clear their decks for sure. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how that goes because it's been, as you said, Edge, a remarkable rise and a total transformation of sports journalism. And we, we I think we all appreciate the, uh, the depth and the quality of the uh, coverage that they give. And we appreciate, as we've said, the guests that they're seemingly as happy as anyone to come on, come on our no, I think uh, that's, humble yeah, podcast. You're and... spot on. But there is a bit of irony in the fact that The Athletic mm. has been, um, you know, preying on the newspapers for years and mm. all of a sudden they've become one. It's, but, like um... it's like succession. I don't know if any of our listeners have been watching that, but it's uh, 
almost a, a complete rerun of that TV show that's on on binge, by the way. But um, staying in North America, Edge, tell us about the Mexican Football Federation. Yeah, the Mexican Football Federation has made another announcement to fans that are caught screaming homophobic chants. It's their fifth announcement in 20 months about threatening to ban fans from national team matches if they continue with homophobic chants. I think it's time for the Mexican Football Federation to stop the announcements and actually ban a few fans. Yeah, that's that's an unbelievable um, state of affairs. And look, obviously, it's close to home edge, this subject matter, of course. We're seeing it on seeing it on our own shores um and i think i think uh, authorities around the world are you know, struggling to struggling to deal deal with this particular problem it's been in the game for a long time and, that's uh, right hey derek you know hmm. that um rob loves a tv series you love a tv hmm. series and i know william's going to talk about afcon in a moment and we don't want to steal his thunder but there is hbo has released a moving but ultimately very sad look at Argentine star Diego Maradona. It's called Diego, The Last Goodbye. It'll be coming to Australian streaming services really soon. Obviously, one of the greatest soccer players of all time. His life's been much documented. We've talked about him a lot here. But the documentary acknowledges his addiction, uh, the role it might have played in his declining health. Um, but it doesn't too much time too much time dwindling on his shortfalls that highlights his compassion. And impressively, it has uh, an incredible reflective view of the impact of his death and the mourning that the Argentinian nation went through. It's apparently going to win all of the um, the plaudits and the awards in the in the documentary uh, awards coming up in the next 12 months. Make sure you have a look at Diego, The Last Goodbye, because it's more a reflection about Argentina well, we culture and life. Marcela Mora y Araujo back on again. She uh, is a passionate Argentinian and, uh, and was wonderful for us. Uh, when... You just love saying Marcella's name. Can you say that one more time for me, please, Rob? Derek does it even better. Can you give us a run, Derek? Uh, I'm not sure I can, but she, you're right. She's a passionate, passionate Argentinian, passionate coffee drinker and smoker. If I <laughs> Marcella Mora, <laughs> even for, for anyone who wasn't listening uh, to our last interview, <laughs> even though it's radio, you could clearly hear Marcella lighting up her her durry and um, and drinking her coffee. As, as the, I think they call it a durry. Don't call it a durry in Argentina. I don't think it's called a durry in Argentina, <laughs> let alone in London where she lives. But, uh... Marcella Mora y That's like something out of the nineteen seventies, Rob. You really, that's a throwback. A Were you having a durry at the back of the Guildford Christian Brothers School or what? Uh, yeah, probably did. A Winfield Blue probably would have been back at the time. <laughs> All right, boys, moving right along. We'll have to watch that edge and uh, maybe get Marcella yeah, on to have a yarn about it. All right, AFCON. Yeah, I'm in love, boys. I'm in love with AFCON. It's been brilliant. We're nearing the end of the group stages. I think Cameroon are in a really strong position. Uh, the only thing that hasn't been good about it, Edge, is that Ghana have had an absolute nightmare. They've brought back Milovan Rejevic, the legendary manager from the 2010 World Cup. Sometimes, though, uh, it's probably best to leave some things in the past. They managed just a point uh, from their three matches against Morocco, Gabon and Comoros. And we're going to speak about Comoros in a second with Derek. But uh, they could have still gone through had they have beaten Comoros in their last match. Pretty early on, they lost Jordan Ayew to a red card and did battle back from two down to equalise, but ultimately uh, went down 3-2 with the uh, with the 10 men. So, Michael, your good friend, uh, Samuel Gogi Mensah from the Middle East, who is a proud Ghanaian, would be uh, licking his wounds at the moment. 
Yeah, he's back actually back in Ghana, and I've been uh, having a few messages with him before and after each of the games. It's fair to say he's unimpressed. Um, it is a bit of an end of an era for the Ghanaians, four-time African champions. Um, this uh, this unsavoury exit from the African Cup of Nations at this stage of, uh, you know, not, not even getting out of the group um, is a bit of a change of the guard because not only... Um, have you know they've been humiliated there? The Black Stars captain Andre Ayew, who is part of a very famous family, there's been three uh, Ayews played previously for the for the Black Stars. He's going to hang up the boots, and he was shown a straight red card in that uh, uh, unfortunate three two humiliation to Comoros, and uh, he was given a red card by um, clattering into the Comoranian goalkeeper, whose name was Salim Ben. Salim Ben. Sounds like Solomon Ben, the former tall West Indian off-spinner. Uh, the other side of that sad Ghanaian story, though, Derek, is that Comoros are clinging for dear life heading into the last two matches of the group stage of the final lucky loser spot. So they're in third, and they're relying on a couple of results involving uh, Sierra Leone and Equatorial Guinea. Uh, but I must admit, I'm happy to put my ignorance on the line. I hadn't heard of the Comoros Islands prior to this tournament, uh, and I'm sure there's a few out there who hadn't either. Uh, they're ranked 132nd by FIFA, which actually isn't too bad. Uh, and they've got a striker called Ahmed Mogni, who must be a national hero now. But you've got another couple of facts about the Comoros Islands. Yeah, that yeah, I knew a little bit about uh, uh, Comoros. I did did a geography and a degree. <laughs> so, but but yeah, I had to go and check out their Wikipedia page before this show. The uh, uh, they are an archipelago just off the uh, east coast of Africa, out near Mozambique. A population of eight hundred and fifty thousand people, so that's about I don't know a quarter a quarter of Melbourne or something like that. A large regional town, a larger, smallish city, um, and uh, they hadn't won. It only won its first qualifier, African Nations Cup qualifier, in two thousand and sixteen. That the twentieth attempt, and their squad. Uh, has been bolstered recently, though, by a smart plan to reach out to Diaspora, who tend to ply their trade in the French League. So they've managed to bring in some uh, some players from there. And their nickname, and I'm going to absolutely murder this, but uh, Les Coela Cantes, which is a type of fish. And maybe we can tweet the type of fish later, uh, Willem. But yeah, look good on them. The group stages of AFCON is definitely designed to keep as many teams in the tournament. It was probably designed to keep Ghana in the tournament and it, and yep. it hasn't. And thankfully for me and Edge, Thomas Party, hopefully will be coming home soon to bolster Arsenal's squad. But uh, yeah, the, uh, the uh, Kialakantes are still in it. The other thing we've got to talk about, Derek, was the disaster between Tunisia and Mali with the referee, Jani Sikazawi. 85 mm. minutes in, he blew full time. They came back on and played again. 89 and a half minutes in, he then blew full-time again, and the Tunisian referee, Monda Kaber, was not impressed in the slightest. Tunisia were a goal down and uh, and chasing a game that they probably should have won. 40 minutes later, the ref finally realises the error of his ways, goes into the presser, tries to pull them back out, and it was actually Tunisia who weren't happy to come back out because they were already 30 minutes into the ice baths. Uh, farcical, to say the least. 
Yeah, farcical. Um, this 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 is Afcon, and you've, you know, I think you've just got to embrace this as I think you have, Willem. That this is just part and parcel of of this tournament, and you know, I think you've got to be careful that you don't sort of, you know, um, tar tar the tournament too much and make assumptions about um, the African uh, continent's ability to to run a tournament. But you know, absolutely, absolutely farcical. I know that they tried to claim he had some kind of um heat stroke uh one theory that's going around is that there wasn't a clock in the stadium at all that's such as the kind of uh, poverty of the of the state some of the stadia they're playing in uh, in cameroon and um they did they did have a drinks break and a lot of people are wondering whether he actually remembered to stop his clock uh. and then turn it back on because that drinks break was about five minutes and it probably said 90 minutes on his watch and he probably thought that that's done uh, but of course, uh, everyone else, everyone else uh, thought differently. So, yeah, look, you don't want to see it. It's some of the reasons why players uh, don't want to go and play in that tournament because, like, they're not always the best run tournaments. They do have problems with refereeing standards and 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 VAR and and, and lots of other things. But I just think you've just got to keep supporting it and and uh, see the bright side of it. I suppose. Yeah, yeah I've, I've worked extensively in Africa, Willem, and. Uh... As I say to my staff on any given day, anything is possible. Just embrace it and work through the challenges in a peaceful and <laughs> joyous way. And uh, I'd say the Tunisian coach, uh, he would have uh, been a European as he was. He would have um, blinked a few times when he saw the referee walk into the <laughs> press conference and ask him, can we play an extra five minutes, please? <laughs> no, uh, no. look, I've embraced it. There's plenty of right side to be seen. I think it's been awesome. Uh, just to round out, the group winners so far have been Cameroon, Senegal, Morocco, and Nigeria. Also progressing, uh, Burkina Faso, Guinea, Gabon, without Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. He's headed back to Arsenal as well. And Egypt, who were very lucky indeed to uh, scrape a 1-0 win against Guinea. Uh, the equaliser was ruled out for a, a very light touch uh, a very light foul in the build-up. Holders, Algeria, they could well be uh, joining Ghana as the uh, the shock early exit. Uh, they sit last in their group heading into the final match day, so we'll know if they made it through by this time next week. And Rob, I'll leave you with a tip. I think Cameroon look mightily impressive on home soil. Uh, Vincent Abubakar, he is a beast, and I've just loved watching him go about it. He scored five goals from the three games, and he plays with a real reverence for the defenders and the, the keeper. He's really not that interested. He just grabs the ball, bangs it in, uh, and he's got Carl Toko Akambi riding shotgun with him. So I think they look the most organised and at their best. Uh, they could be on for the fairy tale of lifting AFCON on home soil. Would it be your great story, Cameroon? So many great stories with the great Roger Miller uh, so many years ago. It would be a nice one to see. We'll keep on enjoying AFCON uh, as it gets to the sharp end of the tournament. All right, Willem, well done. Uh, thank you, mate. Have a good week. Thank you, gents. Derek, stay well. Yeah, pleasure as always. Thanks. Michael, will you be home soon? Yeah, I will be home soon. Uh, don't know when, but I'll uh, advise as, advise uh, when I can uh, get on a plane and come back and see you. And uh, and good to have you back in the uh, in the host chair, Rob. Uh, you, you did okay, mate. You did okay. Thank you, mate. Thank you, cheeky boys. I did uh, listen to every second of the two shows and did have a little bit of a chuckle at some of your smart allegory along the way. Um, Damo, thank you, mate, as always, making us sound as good as we possibly can. And to our dear listeners, thank you again for sticking with us. Please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and please give us a like on Facebook and make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.